Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and a very special episode. This is going to be quite an interesting discussion. Whenever we talk about World War II and missing soldiers, it's always something that's very close to a lot of people's hearts and there's a fascinating story that is currently evolving at the moment about some missing Australian soldiers on the island of Nauru in the Pacific. And joining me to tell that story and to talk more about it is Dr. Matthew Kelly. Matthew, thank you very much for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure, Matt, for having me. Thank you very much. And uh, you're quite right. It is a very, very interesting story. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's set the scene because, I mean, I think most people will probably have heard of Nauru due to its more recent uh, top, uh, topical in the news more recently. Um, a lot of people I don't think would even realise that during World War II, Nauru played a part. So can you just paint a picture for us about what was going on in Nauru and how these Australians ended up being on Nauru in the first place? Right. Well, Nauru, uh, Nauru was interesting to the Australian government simply because um, it had an enormous phosphate deposit on it and uh, that was essential for um, uh, fertiliser use in ag- an agricultural society like Australia. So... Um, the uh, uh, Nauru had originally been a German possession and uh, it was taken over at the end of the First World War and it was run basically by the um, Australians under mandate for a while and uh, they uh, organised a, uh, a, a mining uh, company uh, run by the British as well and the British and the New Zealanders and the Australians ran the uh, uh, British Phosphate Corporation uh, jointly and the Australians were there to uh, largely administer the operations of the phosphate mine, but uh, there were also uh, other aspects of uh, Australian involvement on the island. They were there to educate, and the, there were medical officers as well. Um, there were people required for uh, the shipping in and out, operating the cranes. So it was basically an operation to try and get as much of the phosphate off the island for use in uh, Australia, Britain and New Zealand. And so World War II comes around. What was the Japanese interest in Nauru? Uh, Japanese interest in Nauru initially was exactly the same reason. They saw phosphate as an interesting resource. Um, It was also an opportunity to provide them with another airfield in the middle of uh, the Pacific, though it was a little bit uh, out of the way. Uh, And Nauru also has the dubious distinction of being the only place that I'm aware of in the Second World War that was uh, attacked by both the Germans and the Japanese. So the Germans came by uh, early on in the piece, in I think it was late 41, and shelled the oil tanks and part of the uh, phosphate mine itself from off the coast. 
and then uh, didn't uh, didn't land and and didn't uh, try and uh, attack any further but, and simply sailed on it was the japanese who later um attacked and occupied but in between those two times there were obviously people back in the australian government who were uh, aware of uh, the encroaching threat of the japanese and so um most of the population were evacuated. Most of the, sorry, Western population were evacuated. Uh, women and children and uh, unnecessary uh, members of the Phosphate Commission and five men agreed to remain and to keep running the facility for a little while but also to, uh, f- also to fly the flag in a sense uh, and not let the locals feel that they'd been left in the lurch. So they maintained a, a, an Australian presence on the island up to the Japanese uh, invasion. Tell us about these men because there's some interesting characters amongst these five blokes that are central to this story. Isn't well, I mean, the, um, the primary one is Frederick Chalmers who, was the, uh, who had served in the Boer War, uh, the First World War, and was now the administrator of the island. And his his history is extensive. His military history is extensive, and he was he's a rather revered character uh, on the island. There was uh, there are also uh, the administrators of the phosphate mine themselves, and the uh, and some medical staff um, as well. And they're they're all wonderful men who um, I think realised the uh, the risk that they were taking by staying on the island but also um, saw that there was a higher purpose to their remaining, uh, which was uh, to um, show that there there were Australians who would not forget their connection with the Nauruans, and they're remembered today for for that very reason. They are revered on the island. It must have been at this time with the Japanese closing in, they must have known the threat was very real of Japanese invasion, an incredibly heroic decision to stay. Do we have records that indicate their mindset at the time, why they felt it was important to stay, why they wanted to be there? Yes, look, um, the work done by Scott Seymour in Tasmania is central to this story, and I'm not, um, I'm not privy to all of that private correspondence, I must admit, um, but he has, uh, he has generated a lot of, uh, their, a lot of information pro- from their private correspondence, and I understand it, it is... Uh, it is central to the story of, of why these men were so brave. They, they certainly did realise the danger that they were in, um, but they realised the importance of remaining uh, to, to show their support for the local people. So um, I, I think um, uh, they, at some stage they realised that they would probably never come back. I get the sense from, from uh, talking with Scott that um, they saw this as a mission that, would pro- probably result in their deaths. And so it highlights their bravery and uh, their resilience and stoicism even more, I think. Absolutely extraordinary. So we're in 1942 now and the Japanese do, as uh, suspected, land on the island. What, what, what do we know about that chapter when the Japanese arrived and invaded Nauru? Well, they, um, they did a couple of things. First of all, they um, sequestered the, the remaining Western people uh, together. There were, I seem to remember there were two German um, missionaries on the island as well and uh, they seemed to disappear slightly from the story that they moved to another island I think. The five uh, Australians are uh, left to their own devices uh, in uh, incarcerated on the island and the Nauruans are set to work uh, helping to extend and build 
the, um, the airstrip for the Japanese planes and to provide labour for the Japanese. The Australians uh, are also uh, given labour tasks. Uh, they might be doing gardening and that sort of stuff, but they're, they're treated rather roughly, uh, I think. And um, they're seen uh, as part of the, a Japanese propaganda uh, effort to um, show that the Western powers are now powerless in the face of a Japanese onslaught and the establishment of the uh, Asian co-prosperity sphere, as, they, as the Japanese like to uh, term it. Uh, and uh, they were kept alive, I think, in the initial period for this very reason, to, to, to keep the Nauruans aware of now the Japanese were in charge and the Western powers were um, in retreat. How long were they imprisoned by the Japanese? Uh, for a number of months, I think it was about four and a half months until the first, uh, or five months until the first of the American bombing raids to try and uh, uh, disable the airstrip. And it was after the first one of these bombing raids in uh, March 1943 that uh, the Australians were taken out. And uh, as, uh, as far as I can see, a simple act of uh, plain bloody-minded retribution and were executed. Uh, and our information is that they are executed in a particular spot on one of the beaches and buried there uh, immediately by the uh, by the firing squad that that killed them. Several were uh, bayoneted, uh, and others. Uh, another one was reportedly uh, beheaded. Just horrific. Like all these stories we hear about Japanese and the way that they treat their prisoners, just absolutely horrific. Well, so. subsequent to that, the, the uh, Japanese forces on the island uh, cleared out uh, a leprosarium, a lazaret on the island, and took, um, I think it was 39 of these uh, lepers out to sea and uh, killed them off the coast, and uh, their bodies have never been found. How long were the Japanese on the island for after? They stayed there until the Australians uh, reoccupied the the place in August, September 1945. So most of the people who were involved in the the atrocity still were on the island. So fast forward to today, what's the story of this this hardy band of investigators? Uh, I mean, I've spoken to Scott, who is uh, very passionate about the story. Tell us about the people that are involved in this 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 hunt. So the, the, the situation, as I understand it, is that we know the Australians were executed. Their bodies have never been recovered, as far as we know. And there's now a quest to discover them. Tell us about the people behind that quest. Okay. Well, uh, the uh, the prime mover for all of this is Scott from Tasmania. He's been doing a lot of history, uh, historical research on uh, the five. He initially started doing research on Frederick Chalmers. Um, and his war service and found that uh, uh, he had um, met this fate and so then became interested in the other four men who were involved. Um, he contacted many of the uh, families and, and uh, got uh, information, particular uh, personal information from them. And then, uh, as I understand it, he presented the possibility to the Australian government that since these uh, men had not been recovered, that their remains would was still potentially to be found and that perhaps the government should step in and uh, try and locate their burial place and return their remains to their families in, uh, in Tasmania and Victoria and New South Wales. What was the government response to that? Because my experience with, um, with the, the bodies that were uncovered in Belgium, the five bodies uh, um, in 2006, and then uh, with Fromel, my, my work on that... Uh, and, and I'm not giving the government a hard time here. I understand they've got a big job, but, but there is a resistance to the hunt for missing 
war victims. How was their response this time? Um, it, there was some resistance. They were um, th- they understood the situation, but um, they went so far as to send the um, specialised army unit, unrecovered war casualties army, to the island to investigate the claims. Uh, they went through the uh, a lot of historical information provided by Scott on uh, from the uh, war crimes trials in. Um, Raval, uh, and the location, potential location of the burials. There, were, um, there was evidence given in the war crimes trials uh, by the participants, uh, which included maps of where they had buried these men. So on that basis, um, the unrecovered war casualty unit went out and identified a location near an existing building that uh, was, uh, uh, was there in 1943. So they were pretty sure that they had correctly identified the location but when it came to uh, going the next to the next stage which was doing some test excavations or even looking for the men themselves uh, my understanding is that DFAT um, had some reticence to do that because uh, it wasn't within the remit of unrecovered war casualties because these men were civilians and that that's where DFAT was prepared to leave it that the site had been identified but there was no... They, they probably didn't want to create a precedent because if you bring these five back then there are many other missing and uh, that costs money and it was uh, money that uh, uh, the government wasn't willing to spend. Talk to me about the archaeology and the process because I know from my limited experience with archaeology that more work is done in the archives than is done with a trowel in the ground... Just give, give me, before we get to the nuts and bolts of what you're going to do when you head over there, just talk to me about when this was brought to you, the evidence that was presented to you and your first impressions on seeing this. Was it, was it an open and shut case as far as you, you were concerned? Was it something that needed more research? Just tell us about that process when it was first brought to you. Well, it was, uh, most, of the, most of the evidence when it was brought to me was, uh, was pretty mature evidence, if I could say. that Scott had been working on it a lot and unrecovered war casualties had had winnowed out some of the useless information and had focused in on the on specific uh, archaeological information. They've had the um, uh, lucky opportunity to go out to the site and have a look and, and have a bit of a scratch around, so to speak, and, and look at the lay, lay of the land. So we were presented with not only the evidence from the Rabaul war crimes trials with these maps identifying where the location was, but also the accounts of the archaeologists from Unrecovered uh, talking about the location, how it relates to these particular buildings, um, what ha- has physically likely to have happened in the last 30 or 40 years into the area. And it looks to me as though they, there is a pretty good chance that this is certainly the location where they were buried. What, then, what it then comes down to is that that may have been the place where they were buried, but something has subsequently moved them which has been unrecorded there may have been other activities which we just don't know about there may have been a large sea and a very very high tide that scoured the beach 30 years ago and that sand has been laid back but in because of that the bodies have shifted or have been washed out to sea there may have been construction activities which no one has recorded or no one wants to admit to which wouldn't be surprising in these Pacific nations. It tends to be fairly unregulated. That, that's right. Uh, we know of one uh, account in the, uh, from a Japanese soldier who said that in digging um, with a bulldozer an anti-tank trench across this area, um, 
in expectation that the Americans would uh, want to force a landing on the beach, um, he uncovered two of the bodies and he was ordered immediately to bury them, which he did 30 metres away. That's the account. 30 metres away in what direction? We don't know. So there's at least one account that's uncorroborated at the moment that the, bo- that the burial was disturbed subsequent to, to uh, the initial uh, burial and that some of them have been moved in some direction about 30 metres away. So, again, um, that may be the case uh, and uh, we, we might, might find a burial with three people in it and not find another two, which would be very disturbing and distressing. But that's a possibility. So, look, all of the information seems to be reasonably conclusive, but there's always an unknown in archaeology and uh, you can do the best research you can and the best planning and, uh, for whatever reason, uh, they're not there. What's the process now for examining the site? And, and please give me some detail here because it's absolutely fascinating, the work that you do. And I, I think sometimes archaeologists don't realise how intriguing it is, the, uh, the work that they do. So, uh, so when you get to the site, well, firstly, when are you heading out there to Nauru? Well, we, we were sadly planning on being there at this very moment. Uh, we had made an application and plans to be there in mid-August in 2019. And for a variety of reasons, the primary one was uh, one of our uh, essential party members uh, had a, a serious medical um, diagnosis and uh, they weren't able to accompany us. And another couple of organisational details which made us think, look, to get this right, we'll delay it another 12 months. So we're looking at getting there June, July next year. Um, the first thing we had to do was contact people on the island and say that this is one thing that we're, we're proposing to do. So um, Nauru now has some recently gazetted heritage legislation. So we had to, we had to contact uh, members of uh, the relevant uh, department on Nauru and make a formal application to do the work. And uh, that required a background report be written uh, and uh, weighing up the evidence and providing evidence to the Nauruan uh, government that uh, this is why we thought um, that was the spot and what our processes would be and what the objective of the project was. Is it something that the local people think is important or do they think oh, nutty Australians well, coming from, here to, to turn over the past? No, from what we gather, that uh, they, they do understand that this is an important uh, uh, project from uh, the family's point of view and from... A governmental point of view, we are getting support from uh, government officers, uh, you know, who are smoothing, uh, smoothing our way and dealing with uh, the Nauruan government and providing uh, liaison services, etc., etc. So it's not. Uh, I wouldn't like to give the impression that it's a, a situation of complete obstruction from the government. There, there are government officers who, who are assisting, uh, but um, the Nauruans themselves, I think, understand the significance of it. They're probably getting briefed by the High Commissioner, uh, the Australian High Commissioner over there, about uh, the significance of it. So they and, and they understand that, that the objective is a worthwhile one, uh, and so they have been helpful themselves insofar as they can be helpful with a lot of things going on in the island. Anyway, I believe that there's a, a, an election there at this very moment, uh, and the South Pacific Forum recently. So they, you know, they're trying to run a country and, and we, we just happened to be one small uh, little application. But th- they were very helpful and we eventually got the permit to do the work 
and that was uh, in April this year. And again, as I say, the plan was to be over there now, but we've now delayed that. Um, so the permit has, uh, has been provided. Now we need some practical assistance from people. And Ron Foss, who, is the, um, uh, who now operates the phosphate mine on Nauru, is the organisation that owns the land where this site is. And they've also been very helpful. Um, they've offered uh, us mechanical assistance with a mechanical excavator, uh, labour, uh, stores, things like shovels and um, security fencing, those sorts of pragmatic things that are required. They've offered at no cost to the project to provide us with. Um, so that they've been very good. Uh, and uh, we've also uh, very, very importantly received some uh, donated money from interested parties, none of whom at the moment ne- uh, would like to be identified, but on the basis of some newspaper articles, um, we've uh, had some responses which uh, has resulted in uh, a good budget to undertake the uh, flights and the pay for the accommodation on the island and uh, then hopefully to complete the DNA testing as well. So when you fly out next year, when you get to Nauru, what do you do when you get out to the site? How do you best investigate this site and, and, and feel confident that you've found everything there is to find? The difficulty with the site is that it's on a beach and beach sand is very difficult to control. So if we're digging um, to a reasonable depth and the depth that we understand these men were buried at is about five to six feet at the time, uh, we've got to move a lot of sand to make that excavation safe. Another complication is, is that the site that's identified historically for where they were buried has subsequently been further buried in much deeper sand uh, as a result of construction of the coal loader in the 1960s. And there is also, I understand, iron debris on top of that which we need to have moved. So part, part of the initial work will be simply getting down to the 1940s surface, which will possibly take us a number of days with a mechanical digger, lifting off the iron debris, digging through this 1960s sand fill down to the 1940s surface, and then having identified the, the particular location on the 1940s surface, then we start looking to dig down to a depth of perhaps five feet uh, in beach sand, which means we'll have to extend, to make the thing safe, we'll have to extend the excavation out possibly 10 metres by 10 metres to find a a two-metre hole in the centre uh, with uh, correct uh, sandbagging to make sure the sides don't uh, collapse and that sort of thing. So we, we will do a lot of that by machine, just in terms of time and motion. We need to do that. Um, the first thing we look we will look for when we're doing that uh, by machine is uh, we will look for a grave cut, and hopefully that will turn up reasonably clearly in the in the sand. We'll get down to a certain level and then we'll start scraping back the sand by machine very very carefully, looking for a cut of any description. Once we find that cut, uh, that's when we start using hand tools, and uh, we've got uh, we've got a couple of uh, volunteers who, who are coming with us, who are being paid to come with us. And I've also got a colleague who has done a lot of work uh, in uh, grave identification and body recovery in, uh, for the International Red Cross. He still does work uh, in Africa and Iraq uh, 
for the International Red Cross doing uh, just that work. The big question, how confident are you that you're going to find these missing men? Look, I, I think I'll say 50-50, which is pretty good. Uh, again, having been doing archaeology for as long as I have, I, I just know that there's no point in putting too many eggs in one basket and thinking that, um, thinking that you've identified the location and then that's all you need to do. Uh, there are too many unknowns with the site. It's an open site. Things could have happened, as I say, with high tides and other construction activities which we just don't know about. But uh, 50-50 is pretty good and it's enough, uh, it's enough of a basis upon which to do the work. Uh, having said that, I'm less confident that we're going to find all five and we may only find three or, or even less. Uh, we will attempt to find, if, if we only find three in the initial excavation, we will attempt to uh, employ some metal detecting to uh, search up and down the beach and around the vicinity, see if we can find another potential grave site. Uh, but that is a lot, it, the potential for actually positively identifying a second grave site, given how little we know about where it actually might be. It's the potential for success is a lot less, I think. Assuming you are successful, and I certainly hope that that, that is the case, uh, what will happen then to the bodies? What will happen to those men? Will they be left in the rue? Is the plan to bring them home? What will happen to them then? The plan is to bring them back, and this is, again, one of the other uh, difficulties. We've got to have uh, the correct export and import licences, export from Nauru and import to Australia for human remains. And that takes, uh, uh, that takes a lot of organising, and uh, we're operating that through uh, one of the uh, senior anthropologists at the Victorian Institute for Forensic Medicine, who is looking after that side of the um, of the operation, so that the correct forms are filled out and the correct li liaison with the right people is undertaken prior to us bringing them back on a flight, and that they will be storing the remains, assuming whatever remains we find. We've already got. I think, nine DNA samples from various relatives of the five, which will be used for comparative purposes. Um, I was contacted this morning by email from somebody who had um, heard about the most recent news reports about the award of the Group Bravery Award, and uh, she's interested in putting us in touch with another relative, so uh, another close relative. So the, the more uh, DNA samples we get, the better. The success of identifying them through the DNA analysis is, is not very high. It may be as low as 20%. We may have five sets of human remains that we can't uh, do any further differentiation between other than saying that um, they were all in the one spot and can't tell between them uh, at a DNA level. We may have to use techniques that um, are can age some of the remains. So we know that, for example, Frederick Chalmers is much older than the, the other gentlemen who are all in their late 20s and early 30s. So Chalmers being in, in his late 60s, uh, we should be able to at least identify that set of human remains, if not through DNA, then at least through some of the characteristics that a skeleton should demonstrate for, for being a, a, a person over the age of 50. Uh, the others will be a little bit more di difficult, assuming that we have four other sets. 
I assume if they're identified, they'll be returned to the families and, and then the families will inter them where they feel is appropriate. What if they're not identified, though? You've got these five Australian World War II missing, can't be identified. What would, Do you have any thoughts on what would happen to them then? Well, look, I, we've um, not contacted the families directly about this, but I would think that the next step would be that if, if that is the case, then we would get a decision made on a group level that they would be all interred together, having been awarded a group, having died together, served together, died together, and then receiving this group award, I think it, it says something about um, the the nature of, of their association and that that association continued through into their final internment somewhere in Australia, yet to be determined, would would be entirely appropriate, that there might be a group internment somewhere and that a, um, a, a commemorative uh, plinth or plaque uh, identifying the occupiers of, of this site uh, would would certainly be appropriate, even if we couldn't identify any of the individuals. How important, Matthew, is this entire process to the families? Because we've seen over the years, we've seen at Fromel when they uncovered 250 Australian remains. I saw it myself with the, the Zonnebeck Five that we found in, in Belgium. I'm always surprised that after so many years, it's still so important to family members to get... I mean, the word closure is massively overused, but there, there is a feeling there from family members that it's, 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 it's an unwritten final chapter of the story. In your experience with, with the Nauru Five, how important is this work to the families? Absolutely central. Absolutely central. And I think one of the most disappointing things is that it's taken so long and so, so many of the uh, most closely associated relatives have died and have not had that 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 emotional closure um, and uh, this this hole in their in in their lives needs to be then filled by other relatives who who are, are as equally engaged as equally interested but see the disappointment um, or saw the disappointment in their father or their their mother's eyes when they realised that this wouldn't be resolved and that they would never know. So emotionally, it is, it is absolutely critical. And uh, we, uh, we, through our Facebook page, are in reasonably um, regular contact with most of the um, relatives who we've been able to identify. And uh, they're very engaged in, in this at, a, at a, an emotional and at a practical level. You mentioned the award that's just been given this week to, to these men. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, again, um, very late in coming, but the government has uh, finally recognised these men for their service uh, as um, people representing the government of Australia and also recognising that the men uh, realised that they were in danger by staying and nevertheless stayed and at some stage realised that this was probably going to be the end of them. And uh, the Governor-General announced this week that they were all uh, to receive a Group Bravery Award uh, in the, the la latest announcements. So um, the response from the relatives to that has been very heartwarming. It's, it's, uh, it's something that they're all very excited about. So it just demonstrates, again, this emotional connection that that the people we're in contact with uh, have with their, with their relatives. Matthew, why do you think this type of work in general and this project specifically, why is this important after 
70, 75 years, why does it still matter that we go and find the mortal remains of people who died during the Second World War? Well, it is this emotional connection that we have with people. Um, it's uh, As an archaeologist, I might tend to look at it at a, at a slight technical level, but um, if you look at it from the perspective of, of people who either have served themselves or are related to people that serve, you can see that um, that service is an important part of what makes them who they are or who they were. And it's also what is also important, which was uh, demonstrated this week with the announcement for the award, was that it's also a recognition from the, the people that they serve for, the government in the first instance and the rest of the community, that their service is recognised as important. So I think a project like this demonstrates to people who are serving and people who have served and the relatives of, of any missing that there are community members that do recognise that this, the service itself is, is important and that we appreciate that and that we will go to pretty extreme lengths to um, make sure that uh, that recognition is, is given some sort of physical form, in this case, uh, repatriation. Well, I certainly wish you all the best. If people want to uh, keep up to date with what you're doing and perhaps contribute, uh, where, where's the best place for them to go to find out more about it? Well, probably to our Facebook page, uh, which is Naru Missing 5, just on Facebook. And um, we update that reasonably regularly with uh, new information as it becomes available. Um, our last uh, uh, posts have been about the Bravery Awards, but uh, we make announcements when the permit was uh, was issued and, and uh, dates for when we're actually going to do the work. And uh, they can contact us through uh, the attached email address on that Facebook page if they'd like to um, provide information or just ask questions. Well, it's wonderful work, Matthew, and I certainly wish you all the best. And we will, certainly through this podcast and all my other channels, we'll be keeping everyone updated on, on the good work that you're doing. And I think I speak for everyone when I say good luck. Uh, these men are deserving of being recovered. And so I certainly hope that, uh, that you have success in your quest. And, and thank you very much for joining us to talk about it. My pleasure, Matt. Thank you very much. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 